So you see, I already have the football, and that kind of goes against what we're used to. But Christy Phillips and her daughter Kendall had it this week. Uh, and she realized on Thursday, oh my goodness, I'm not going to be there on Sunday. And so she literally drove over and made sure we had the football because she did not want to throw off our groove. So, um, but no doubt when they had it, they were reminded of the fundamentals. And, and that's what we, that's why we're doing this. We throw it out. We give it to somebody each week so that when you see it, you think of our church and you pray for us that we would do what God's called us to do and be who he's called us to be. So um, uh, my eye, I'm looking for the next person. So. All right, well, we're well into our journey uh, into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, we're going to wrap up chapter 5 today. Nearly everything that seems to make sense in this world is completely flipped in God's kingdom. And even though God's actually turning things right side up, it can feel a bit unnerving because it's so counter to everything we know, to everything that comes so naturally to us to the things that are just so commonly expected and treasured in this world. The Beatitudes are the quintessential example of this. Humility is the last thing that this world esteems, and yet it is to be the very essence, the very nature of those who are citizens in the kingdom of God. After the Beatitudes, Jesus tells his disciples that they are salt and light. That's our identity in this world. Right where we're planted, day after ordinary day, we are to be altogether different than the world around us, which brings praise and glory to our Father in heaven. He explains that our righteousness is to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and that's because it must come from an inner transformation of our hearts and our minds that's possible only when we receive the gift of faith in Jesus Christ and his spirit takes up residence in us. And then Jesus moved into these six antitheses, murder and hate, adultery and lust, divorce, oaths. And with every one, it seems like Jesus just pushes us deeper and deeper into this all-in discipleship to which we've been called. Last week, David unpacked how Jesus expects his disciples to think about retaliation And that was a tough word. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Go back and, uh, excuse me, go back and listen to that sermon if you haven't heard it in its entirety. You can find it on our website or YouTube. But in a nutshell, we learned that Jesus took this right down to our personal interactions and relationships with one another right? He's not addressing national security or the legal system or anything like that. He's addressing you and me right here and now living life beside one another. What are we to do when we're wronged? Jesus says, we take it. We don't retaliate. We don't try to get even or get back at someone. You may not, oh goodness gracious, sorry. I was getting a little excited because I was going to do this. You may not have someone like slap you across the side of the, of the face anymore these days, but what if someone deliberately slanders you? What if someone totally drags your name and your reputation through the mud? What do you do as a Christ follower? Jesus says you take it. You don't try to turn it back around on them. You choose grace. You choose to die to the world to what people think or believe about you, and trusting yourself to the one who did that very same thing for you. 
What do you do if people seek to try to take advantage of you, trying to make what's yours, trying to take what's yours for themselves? What do you do as a Christ follower? You let them. You give them even more than what they came for. You choose grace. You choose to die to the people around you, trusting that God is able to take care of you because that is precisely what Jesus did. What if someone manipulates a situation or abuses their authority and forces you to do what isn't really your responsibility to do? What do you do as a Christ follower? You do it, and then some. You choose grace. You choose to die to yourself, because that is exactly what Christ did for you. It's all about grace, about being generous, not just in our actions, but in our hearts, toward those who don't deserve it, because that is what Jesus did for us. He died to himself in order that we might live. And so this final antithesis that we're looking at this morning, it's very closely tied to the one about retaliation, and with it, Jesus just brings it on home. It's almost kind of the linchpin of them all. Tom's going to read our scripture for this morning, but before he does, let's pray. Lord, your word is perfect. It is trustworthy. It is right, radiant, and pure. It is more precious than much pure gold. Lord God, we pray this morning that through the power of your Holy Spirit, it would revive our souls. We ask that you would make us wise, fill us with joy, and lead us into righteousness for your name's sake. God, may it pierce our hearts and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have heard that it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is imperfect. Thank you, Tom. So speaking of perfect, we humans are perfectly good at one thing. We can twist and distort truth like nobody's business. Right? We might start at the right place for like two minutes. <laughs> but then over time, because everything we think and feel and say and do is distorted by sin, if we're not careful, we end up so far from where we started to, where we're supposed to be, where we start, that straight edge of truth. We wander further and further and further away from it. Where in the Old Testament scriptures are we ever commanded to hate our enemies? Nowhere. But that is precisely what the scribes and the Pharisees were explicitly teaching by the time Jesus came on the scene. And they would point to the law as their justification. But remember, when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, he wasn't correcting the law. 
He was correcting their misinterpretation of it. They had wandered a long way from that straight edge of truth. In Leviticus 19, God prescribed to Moses how the people of God were to conduct themselves. They were to honor their parents, not steal from or lie to one another. They weren't to oppress each other, servants or otherwise. They were even directed in ways that they were to care for sojourners or foreigners, people who might travel and pass through their land. To put it simply, they were to do what's right, not taking advantage of the poor or the deaf or the blind or anyone else among them. It literally says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But here is the sin spiral that happened over time. In order to understand it, though, we need a brief history lesson. So the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, is the story of how God chose a particular man, Abraham, through whom would come a very particular people, the Israelites, or as we call them, the Jews, who were to be the ones through whom God would reveal himself to the world in a very particular way. He could have done it any way he wanted. He could have chosen anyone. They weren't special. They were simply the ones God chose in order to fulfill his redemptive purposes in the world. But they were to do it on God's terms and in his way. So when they came to the promised land, God directed the Israelites to deal very specifically and decisively with all those who weren't his people. They weren't Jews. They were pagans or Gentiles. They were people in and through whom sin had run rampant. To be sure, the conquest of the promised land has been the subject of much angst and consternation over the centuries among those who don't understand how a God of love could direct the Israelites to eliminate whole groups of people. We can't really even begin to tackle that subject thoroughly in a setting like this. And though I risk oversimplifying it, we can be sure of this. How and where and why God directed his people to go and take the land was a judicial decision made by the sovereign, holy, and just God over people living and, quite frankly, reveling in their sin. People he created for his glory. The conquest of the promised land was directed by God whose wisdom and ways are perfect and certainly not our own. It was never intended to become some kind of personal vendetta for the Jews against anyone who wasn't one of them. But we can understand their sin spiral, can't we? The fact is we would have done the same thing. Over time, the Jews came to believe that their neighbors, whom they were to love, according to Leviticus 19, were only fellow Israelites. Whom, uh, they could, they could, they could, they should love each other, right? That makes perfect sense. 
But they came to believe that they were to regard everybody else in the world not only as aliens or outsiders, but as enemies. They literally thought of and referred to all Gentiles, or literally anyone who wasn't a Jew, as dogs. The Israelites and their religious leaders specifically actually came to believe and then taught their kids, their grandkids, that it was their right and duty to hate everyone who wasn't a Jew. And they were in turn hated for it. And we can see the evidence of this deep-seated hatred and hostility between Jews and Gentiles all throughout history, biblical or otherwise. I couldn't help but think of the ever-increasing divisiveness for every reason under the sun that seems to be tearing our own country apart at the seams. Really, we're not all that different from those Jews who were sitting there listening to Jesus that day. All those centuries of thinking the entire rest of the world were their enemies, hating them simply because they weren't like them. They weren't Jewish. But Jesus says, no, that is not the way of my kingdom. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So remember, Jesus had just finished teaching his disciples that we must die. We must die to the ways of this world. We're called to die to the people right around us. And perhaps hardest of all, we must die to ourselves, to our self-absorption, our self-esteem, our self-interest, our reputations. We are to choose grace by not resisting the one who is evil. More than that, we're actually to be generous towards them. And as if that wasn't hard enough for them to wrap their minds and hearts around, Jesus took it even further and said they were to love their enemies. He was taking it right back to the internal motivation again. I mean, sure, I might be able to muster up enough strength to not resist someone who seeks my harm. I may be able to will myself to turn the other cheek and give him my tunic or go the extra mile and so fool him and those around me that I'm a mature and spiritual person. But Jesus here calls us to far more than that. He says that we are to consciously and actively choose grace. We are to choose to love those who seek our harm. And that means it's got to come from here. Jesus' main concern is always the condition of our hearts about why we do what we do. And that's what we've seen from the very first words of his sermon. So what does that even look like? I don't want to stray too far from our verses, but this is where I think we get it really messed up. What does it mean to love anyone, actually, enemy or otherwise? Does loving someone mean we feel really good feelings about them? 
Does it mean we like them and enjoy hanging out with them? Does it mean that we agree with them? Maybe, but not necessarily. Biblically, that's not what we know about godly love. One author wrote that true love is not sentiment so much as service. Practical, humble, sacrificial service. Jesus in John 14 said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, biblical love is to obey God who practically, humbly, and sacrificially loved us in Christ. That's it. We love, we obey, we die to ourselves regardless of our rights, our feelings, our prerogatives. To love is to choose grace because that is how God has loved us. And in our text, we see that when we love like that, it shows that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. It's our identity. It's evidence that we are sons and daughters of our Father who is in heaven. God loves. God is love. And so as his disciples, we too must love friend or foe, neighbor or enemy. But that does beg the question, who are our enemies. We just learned that for the disciples back then, it was anyone who wasn't a Jew. But who are they now? We talked about this as a staff this past week, and we basically landed on this idea that an enemy is anyone who is against me, anyone who actively sets him or herself up against what I hope or want to do, someone who seeks my harm in any number of ways. But as I got to thinking about it more, it occurred to me, maybe Jesus' point is that those people who are really, really hard for us to love for whatever reason, maybe they're the ones he's talking about. Are y'all picturing them in your minds right now? Whether we call them or think of them as enemies or not, as disciples of Jesus Christ, if we are not treating them as God commands us, then understand this, the problem is ours, not theirs. You have no doubt, if you've listened to me at all over the years, heard me say this before, but a mantra that our house, when we were growing up, when we were raising our kids, was this, regardless of how you treat me, my response is my responsibility. And regardless of how I treat you, your response is your responsibility. Period. So basically what Jesus says is, I don't care who's in front of you. I don't care what they've done to you. I don't care how you feel about it. Your response is your responsibility, and a Christ-like response is to love them. Jesus did actually provide here, thankfully, one specific example of a way that we can love our enemies or those people who are Really, we really are having a hard time loving. And it resonated, it resonates still very deeply with me. 
Because I had, I had a horrible bully growing up, although we never called them bullies, right? When I was a kid, they were just really mean kids you had to learn how to deal with. Um, but he was awful. He was relentlessly cruel to me, lived right down the road from me, rode my bus, always sat near me in class because our last names were close. I, I'm, I'm telling you, from kindergarten through our senior year, it was awful. It reached its peak our freshman year. Um, he Now, full disclosure, Cammy snapped, okay, and uh, I didn't really handle this particular situation terribly well. It was pretty ugly. I remember when my mom suggested to me that we start praying for him. I'm sorry, what, what is that now? What are you saying? What are we doing? Uh, we did. And as much as I wanted to pray like, mm, get him, Lord. I really wanted to pray that. That was in my heart. I confess. However, when I would go to pray, I knew, even though I had no good thoughts about this guy, I had no good feelings about this guy, I knew that I probably needed to pray God's heart toward him. That he would come to know the love of God, that he would be rescued from his sin and darkness, just like I had been rescued from my sin and darkness. That his heart would be softened toward God and toward those around you and those around him. And let me tell you what happened over time. As we prayed, God changed my heart. God changed my heart. And I saw that kid differently than I ever did before. And you know what I learned? You can't really pray not the way God teaches us to pray for someone you hate. Now, I wasn't really being persecuted for my faith per se, though it did include that at times, but he was definitely someone I had a really hard time loving. Listen to how John Stott so powerfully expresses this. It is impossible to pray for someone without loving him, and impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for him grows and matures. We must not, therefore, wait before praying for an enemy, until we feel some love for him in our heart. We must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him, and we shall find our love break first into bud and then into blossom. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, what pain pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours. So after Jesus told his disciples that they are to love their enemies, what did Jesus mean when he said, he, meaning God, makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust? What does that have to do with anything? Well, that bolded word for there is our clue. As his sons and daughters, if we are going to bear resemblance to our Father in heaven, then we need to love like he loves. And the metaphor Jesus uses is meant to show us that divine love is utterly indiscriminate. It's poured out on both the good people and the bad ones. 
The theological term for this is common grace. And what is meant by common grace is that it's not the saving grace which enables sinners to repent and receive the gift of faith, but it's the grace that is shown to every single human being on the planet. Good ones, bad ones, believers, unbelievers, Jews, Gentiles, all those who have been made in the image of God, which is all of us, enjoy common grace. And that grace is demonstrated in lots of ways, but here are just a few. We've all been given life. We all live on this incredible planet in a nearly incomprehensible universe. The sun shines and the rain falls on each and every one of us. Life is hard and life is blessed, no matter who you are. God doesn't just show grace and love to the ones who are going to love him back. But that's what we want to do, right? It's so much easier to give grace and to love the ones who are going to reciprocate, to the ones who we feel deserve it. But Jesus says, no, that is not the way of my kingdom. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So we already know that the Jews of, we already know how the Jews of Jesus' day felt about Gentiles, but what's with tax collectors? What's the deal with them? Why does Jesus bring them up? Well, they were maybe even worse than the Gentiles in a Jew's mind because tax collectors were Jews who were considered to be traitors. They worked for the Romans, and they ripped off their fellow Israelites for their own gain. And again, as I thought about it, I think Jesus was just taking them right back to a few minutes before, if you will, when he said to them, you are the salt of the earth and the light of this world. You shouldn't live or look or be like everybody else around you. You are altogether different than those who are still living in darkness, and now you've got to live that way. Gentiles, those dogs, tax collectors, those traitors, they easily love people who love them. They only greet their friends, so don't go feeling good about yourself when you do those same things. Jesus says, no, that is not the way of my kingdom. You are different. So live like it. Love like it. And then Jesus concludes this segment of his sermon with these words. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's not even possible though, is it? I mean, nobody's perfect, right? Correct. But Jesus wasn't saying or expecting that we're going to be morally perfect. Even within this sermon, we already saw that he urges his disciples to hunger and thirst after righteousness, meaning we don't, we don't have it all yet. We need more, right? We're going to see that he teaches his disciples to ask for forgiveness, which means we're going to screw up. So clearly he knows that we are never going to arrive this side of heaven. So what does he mean? 
Well, context helps us to understand that the perfection Jesus is talking about is the way that God loves. Again, God doesn't love based on whether or not people deserve to be loved. He loves and he pours out grace on all those he has made, even for those who would reject him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God's love is perfect. And it isn't based on us for one second. It's based entirely on who he is, on his character. And that's how our love is to come from, where our love is to come from as well. Our response is our responsibility. We are to love others as he has loved us in order that we might be living reflections of our perfect father who is in heaven. So do you think Jesus' disciples were starting to get it? Are we? Christ followers are to be categorically different than everyone else on the face of the earth. If we weren't convinced yet, with these last two antitheses, it's undeniable that this kind of life is impossible without the power of God at work within us, without his rescuing grace. It is a supernatural work, which again just points to the fact that Jesus here is teaching his disciples and no one else. These kinds of responses, this dying to self, this loving our enemies as God loves us, it's all impossible for anyone who is not a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Just like David said last week, the reason this is all so hard for us, our fundamental problem isn't all those people or all that stuff going on in the culture around us out there. It's us. My fundamental problem is me. My sin. Self. And your fundamental problem is you. And we can't fix ourselves. There's nothing we can do on our own about our sin. We need help. We need rescue. It is a desperate situation. And that is precisely why Jesus came. He is the one who lived all of what he teaches in this sermon perfectly. He is the supreme example of the life we're called to. He hasn't asked us to do anything that he hasn't already done. That red drop of blood is the key to it all. Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. This is the gospel. We're all born into the old life, dead to sin, held captive to darkness, walking down that dark, wide path, headed for eternal destruction. When through his word, Christ convicts us of our depravity and we become, we receive his saving grace through faith and we become Christ followers, we become disciples, we are saved, right? He washes away our sin and we become white as snow and we are then justified, made right before God born again and covered in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that is what places us squarely on that narrow path. You must know that that is our only hope. We cannot live the kind of life that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount unless we have his indwelling spirit empowering us to do so. We can't change 
our own hearts. We cannot follow through on our commitments. We can't be people of truth and integrity publicly and privately. We cannot die to the world, to those around us and to ourselves. We cannot love and pray for our enemies. We can't be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect unless we are brought from death to life again through Jesus Christ. When that happens, the same Holy Spirit who strengthened Jesus to die to himself then lives in us and super, supernaturally helps us to do the same. He helps us become more and more like Jesus. And so no matter what situation with, in which we find ourselves, through his power and strength, we are able to respond with the same love and grace that the Father pours out on us through Christ. And that, my friends, is the upside-down kingdom that we get to be a part of. So as the band comes up, I'm going to explain what our response time is going to be for this morning. I want to encourage you to think of those one or two people who you would consider to be your enemies. And again, as I mentioned earlier, you may not necessarily have ever even thought of them as enemies or you call them enemies, but you really struggle to have any kind of love in your heart toward them. And I know y'all have at least one person right up here right now in your heads. So what I want us to do this morning is I want, I want us to pray for those people. Pray for them. Not because you feel it, but because that's how you have been loved. And if that is how deeply the Father has loved us, if that is how deeply Jesus loved those who hated him and treated him so violently, how could we love those around us any differently? Thank you.